This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and this is my co-host, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This co-host chair is super comfy. (laughs) It is. Uh, So we're here at Identity Week America this week, and uh, Jim is across literally the country in San Francisco at the Octane Conference, so you're filling in. I didn't know that you you two could actually be physically separated like I, I didn't know what happens is there a weird magnetic field that forms between the two of you and you have to be scrunched back together like how does that work well what's going to happen is it's so we've been a long, we've been apart for so long there's actually going to be an emergency broadcast alert later today just to warn people about that so if while we're recording this you hear a whole bunch of things going off yeah that's that's why that's happening it's like literally a national podcast emergency is a what national saying. podcast global I would say galactic podcast emergency. Um, it'll probably go out on channels out into you know space, and uh, whoever is out there, if anyone is out so there. So what they're please. saying is like, was it Star Trek One or Voyager? Oh, you was, lost me now. Was send, sending signals way out into like deep space, and it summons like a whole big ship. Uh, like it would be your, so, your, your so broadcast signal. If the signal, if the podcast signal goes out that far, and aliens show up, are we blaming Identity at the Center for that? We're not going to be here for it. <laughs> this is true. Right at that point, too late. Doesn't matter wow, anymore. Someone else's future problem. Sorry about that. <laughs> Awkward. I'll, I'm happy to kick that can down the curb. Um, so yeah, we're here at Identity Week America. Ian's here. He's guest co-hosting with me. Uh, he's brought along a friend, Steve Hutchison, a.k.a. Hutch. Welcome to the show, Hutch. Thank you. So you're a director of security architecture with Mitsubishi Bank of Tokyo, which, one, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I'd like to understand a little bit about your identity background. So we've gone through Ian's. We're not going to put people through that misery again. No, we don't need to torture Ian. them. <laughs> um, but we'd love to hear from people first time on the show, and hopefully not the last, is how did you get into the space of identity? Um, actually, I... I I think Ian mentioned this, like when we were first pitching ID Pro, is that nobody really got into identity by like studying identity. You ended up backing into the the art by doing something else. And I'd started out as a C++ programmer with a healthcare company. They said, oh, you're the PC guys, so we're also going to put you in charge of networking. We've got seven PCs in a room downstairs uh, here take this and make it work which was a, a box of netware 215 if I'm aging myself and that's where I first got my introduction into uh, identity management you know having to do user management and the security around logins and administration um, and plus it was a, it was a really good background for the the networking piece of it. It was all kind of in that security realm. And uh, from there, I went to uh, enterprise architecture and then enterprise security architecture, still all with that same company or with the companies that bought the company. Um, in 2011, I got the job of a lifetime at GE at their information security tech center which was kind of the global cybersecurity office, and they wanted me to focus just on identity, which I thought was going to be 
really narrow, wasn't going to be big enough for me. And it turned out to be a little bit more narrow, but hundreds of miles deep. And that's when I first got involved in kind of the larger identity community. And I met people on the, the, the conference tracks at uh, Cloud Identity Summit and Identiverse and Gartner and um, Twitter conversations. And that's where I met Ian and Pam and Andrew and Nishant and you know, all of those. Definitely and, part of the original Identorati, as we yeah, call it, right? Definitely. And, and fell in love with um, what was happening with it. It wasn't, there was, there was, there was a world that was opened up mm-hmm. to me because of them and because of what was going on and the thing that I wasn't aware of. And when I became aware of it, I didn't want to do anything else. So you kind of validate something that I've posited here very early on was that most people in identity today did not pick identity. Identity picked them. It chooses you. And yeah, backed into it, fell into it, you know, didn't really realize, you know, kind of <laughs> how you even got started of it. And I think there's still some people today who are in identity and don't really know it. I'm going to point back to the conversation I had yesterday with Molly Taylor from Identity Week. I, you know, I asked, it's like, so before we hit record, I had said, okay, so Johnny, Molly, do you guys consider yourself identity people? I was like, no, we consider conference people. And it's okay, well, how many, you know, Molly, how many times have you done identity conference? She's like, this is my sixth one. I'm like, I hate to say it, but you might be an identity person. <laughs> and there's plenty of room for identity people that are technical versus non-technical and every shade in between. There's nice. an inexpensive home test you can take. You may actually find out if you're an identity person. <laughs> Does the person. government fund that? Well, can I go to the USPS and request actually, that? Yeah, come? everyone's going to get two tests at home in another month. You too may have identity disease. <laughs> <laughs> we did a we did a series of recordings at a Identiverse a couple of years ago where one of the topics was, what was your background? And it was great because it, the, there were like eight of us who did different ones and only two of them really had like a a science or computer science background i mean mine is history i mean thank god i had computer science minor because that's the only thing that's paid the bills for 35 years but um it's amazing the the breadth of uh diversity in backgrounds that people in the identity space have and it's important i think it's important to have that I think the other thing about that is, I mean, some of the best identity architects and product managers I know don't have college degrees. They're journey people. I don't have a degree. And I learned entirely on the job. I did not know that. And now, like, you continue to add to this case, which is there's a lot of things about being an identity that you're a, you're a journey person, you're a tradesperson in some regard, and you learned, and I think... I think this is somewhat still the same. You're learning on the job in a very pragmatic way and then sort of making that more abstract and more applicable inside of your business division, your enterprise, your industry. And there's something very satisfying about that versus a sort of academic approach, you know, a more academic, let's say, yeah, approach. It, I'm doing interviews for people who are going to move into that identity space I the college education piece is like the last thing that you look at you want to see what's their experience and it, it most of the things aren't things that they teach in a college program so what you need to do is you need to hire people who are smart who have shown that they're agile in you know learning and picking up new skills because I'm 
that's what you're going to end up having to do. And in most of the identity um, programs at different companies are, I mean, we, we use similar tools and we use similar concepts, but the, the, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of instruction that has to go on to learn uh, a particular company's identity. Right? Even after decades of doing it, most recently at Mitsubishi, I was really fortunate to have um, somebody who was in that program, Mitch Klein, who um, spent the time to teach me. It's like, okay, here's how we do this here. And it's only once you have that, if you want to modernize a solution or if you want to introduce new things, you understand how to lay those out and what stories are going to resonate with the business. And I think underlying that is you've got you've got to have really good active listing and empathy skills, right? Because you're going into these businesses, you know, whether it's your own or it's someone else you're helping. And you're like, oh yeah, I know how to apply all these tools to do all these things on paper. That's all theoretical <laughs> until you get into the, hey, why is this one system over here not hooked up to the privileged account management system? Well, okay, so about that, right? And if you're not there in a non-judgmental moment, just to simply say like, tell me about why this is, and then I can understand it, and then I can identify like, can I help you make this better, versus here, here's some tech, go deploy it, have a nice day. I see that quite a bit where people go off, and you know, my day job is consulting. And I feel like I've had, let me come back to this in a second, because I feel like I've had three educations throughout my career. Um, the first was food service. I did 10 years of food service. So everything from busboy to bar manager and everything in between. So I learned customer service there. Mm -hmm. So if you don't give customer service, you're not making anything for tips. Um, then I went to work at an enterprise and a help desk and we moved over to these information security space before there was really kind of an anything. So I learned enterprise identity sort of on the ropes there quite a bit learning you know, how things worked. And then the next phase of my career is consulting. And that's where I learned, oh, okay, there are more than one way to do this thing. And let me relearn everything that I thought I knew about identity all over again, because now I'm seeing more and more out there. Um, and the, the biggest mistake that I see with the organizations that I work with is they went off and bought a tool thinking it was gonna solve their problem. They didn't think anything about the people in the process. They just, oh, we've got, we've got a budget for privileged access management. That'll take care of that problem. And then they go off and buy it. And it sucks. But this is, this is, I was just thinking about this in this context, which is you buy an amazing vacuum cleaner. Are we talking Dyson? What are we? Let's say you're going talking okay. Dyson. Let's say you're going for like super bougie vacuum cleaner and you've got it all unpacked and charged. And then you just stare at it. You're like, why are my floors still filthy? I don't want right? to get it dirty. Like exactly why I spent way too much to get this thing. But like, a little bit of an extreme thing, but like the the mechanics of this don't just happen, right? You buy a really efficient hot water tank. It doesn't plumb itself. And the thing that's always interesting to me about identity is because it touches every part of an enterprise, no matter what sector, no matter what industry, no matter what geography, there is an opportunity afforded you to actually understand the whole business. Mm -hmm. And what blows my mind, and Hutch, I'd be curious if you see this, is that, in your experience, is that the identity teams tend to know the most people in the businesses because 
out of necessity. Like I certainly found out in my own experience, but I'm not sure you know if that was unusual or not. That you you were always talking to new people in new places. No, I would say so. I, when I move into a company, I tend to be there for a while. I was at my first role for 20 years, uh, GE for 10 years. Just finished year three at Mitsubishi. Um, but I would say at all three of those companies that that was absolutely true, if only because there are unique identity use cases in each business department, division, what have you. And you need to understand how all of those use cases can be, um, can the, the needs of those use cases can be met by uh, a single identity ecosystem fabric, whatever thing. So yeah, I I totally agree with that. That's that's been my experience as well. I think the one thing that you probably learn. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Is diplomacy and really working with other parts of the business. Because when I grew up in the security space, it was at the time information security was seen as the department of no. Oh, you can't do that. We've got to put a firewall in there. Blah blah blah. Right, <laughs> and then. I loved this concept of identity, and this really where I got my start was because it didn't feel like it was a no. It's like, yeah, here's how we can do it. Here's how we can, you know, enable the business or whatever it may be, and, and building those relationships. And now, when I look at a role like an IAM program manager, which some organizations may have, some may not have that by title, and maybe just someone wearing that hat on the side. Um, and I feel like a lot of the work that that role does is diplomacy. They're out there shaking hands, kissing babies, <laughs> right, all that stuff to build those relationships. Do you see the same thing? Yeah. It, Ian mentioned uh, empathy before, and you really have to kind of understand the, the needs of the, the business. And, and I would like to think that I do that relatively well. I know I do have my own biases, and that's not to say that the job can't be incredibly frustrating at times, and there are people in departments that will, will frustrate you. But you're not going to be successful unless you're a partner to the business. And the only places we've really had like serious arguments about is when the business starts trying to do solutioning um, instead of trying to get them to you know, kind of thoroughly define the, the business requirement that they're trying to solve. It's like, tell me, how, tell me what the business requirement is that you're trying to solve, and I will tell you how we can get it done using the strategy that we've already defined, or I'm totally willing to modify this if it's not something that can be met by it. But you have to do that with the entire business. And Department A may not care what Department C is doing, but you have to. So it, you, you, are, you are correct when you say um, it's, it's one of the few places where you're gonna meet everybody, but if, if, if you can't be diplomatic, then people are going to stop coming to you mm -hmm. with their business requirements. You're not going to be successful. You're not going to get your program money. I need the businesses to be champions of our services just as much as the IAM team is a champion of them. Yeah, I'm not pick. using it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a value. I, was always, I always got nervous in my experience when, for a given initiative, we were operating with a mandate because that meant it was a push, right? There's a thou shalt business, you gotta go do this, or division, you gotta go do this, versus the pull, right? Where it's like, hey, I got this thing, 
they used it over here and they reduced XYZ by this percentage or, you know, you know, saw this efficiency, what have you, reduced audit burden by this much. And then becomes the pull, right? Then the, mm -hmm. the other, but a lot of times there are some things, sometimes it has to do with compliance, sometimes it has to do with it, you know, from an actual very critical security situation where you're like, nope, this is a thou shalt. And those are the ones where you go back on those relationships and be like, okay, so... Let's go to lunch. <laughs> yeah, we're going to need to... Let's, let's take that walk because, like, no one in this situation is super happy about it, but there's a real critical need, and it's going to kind of be miserable for all of us, and let's just push through it. Um, but you got to build up that, that currency mm -hmm. to do that. It's very difficult to walk into a situation and be bad cop immediately. <laughs> it's like, okay, we got to do all those things. That's, I think that's where historically we've come from is that information security mindset. And I've seen a real flip on that in the last 10, 15 years. I feel like, for me at least, those, those have been the easier ones to, to solve. Because if I've got like an audit team or a regulatory team that's coming and saying, you have to do this, it's not me saying right. you have to do yeah. it. All I'm doing is saying, okay, this is this is the way that we're going to meet that regulatory requirement. And the businesses may not like it, but they have to go along with it. But I feel like that's maybe 10% mm -hmm. of the work that we actually get done. The other 90% is trying to use peer leadership where I can't tell somebody to go do something. I need I need them to get on board. And the only way I can do that is to sell them on, this is how this is going to make your life easier. This is how you're going to um, be able to sell more services. You're going to be able to deploy to a larger customer base, um, those type of things. I think it's really freeing out what's your field of dreams moment. <laughs> We've built it. We sure hope people will come out and attend. Um, it's, it's a balance. It goes through that. I'd love to talk a bit more about your role as a director of security architecture. What the okay. heck does that mean? What do you do? <laughs> so um, I got into architecture at, uh, at GE, which was, um, it was still a lot of hands-on work, but it was more, that's when you start moving up a, a level and looking at the enterprise in a more holistic manner. Mitsubishi is a really good company in that they recognized that they needed that. So I'm part of a, a larger uh, architecture team that's made up of just a bunch of brilliant architects, each within their own domain. Um, identity and security tend to be my, my focus points. So like one of the first things I was handed coming through the door was, hey, we need you to look over our identity ecosystem and tell us what you would start with to, to make improvements, which turned out to be uh, identity governance administration and privilege access management. And you know, we're, we're continuing to work on, on both of those. But the architecture department is the, we're in domain architecture. So there's enterprise architecture, which is more about the governance and the process, and the, that's what they manage. Domain architecture takes all of those enterprise rules and we kind of decompose them down into um, our domains. And then like for the identity domain, I would talk about here are the, the standards that are in play, here's 
for something like directory services. Here's what we're using now. Here's what's in containment. Here's some stuff that we think is coming down the pike in a few years. And then, you know, the future state stuff, the things like at a conference like this that they're, they're talking about that we're going to keep on our radar. And I've actually got that for, you know, about two dozen uh, individual buckets within that identity space. And then we have solution architects who take the patterns and everything that we develop in the domain and put them together to actually build solutions for the, the, the developers and such. So you also work with ID Pro. And yes. It, how did you get involved with ID Pro? It was, it was your co-host, <laughs> Ian. Ian, what'd you do? <laughs> I so, knew Hutch as a, he was my client. Right. Oh, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's how we first. I, that's how I first got to know you is when I was Burton Group days. Yep. You were my client, and I just oh, knew God. he was a good guy. I forgot about Burton Group. <laughs> that's I, what a name great, I haven't heard. In what a, a long great time. organization that was. There, uh, you know, the funny thing is, you mentioned Novell. Well, I was a Novell three one one administrator, so that dates me relative to you, uh, and a lot of old school identity folk are kind of children of Novell. There's there's actually one walking around here. I know Jim is too. Uh, but Burton Group was very much that. Uh, Jamie Lewis uh, and, and Craig Burton were both at Novell. So like there's an interesting heritage about Novell, both as a company, but also as an identity company and its influence on a certain generation of, of people. But anyway, we digress. This is about Hutch. <laughs> well, let me, let me tie it back to me. <laughs> the, the first session at the first conference I ever attended was the 2013 Clyde Identity Summit in Napa, California. And it was the Hitchhiker's Guide to Identity with Nishant, Pam Dingle, and Dale Olds. And I didn't know Pam, and I didn't know Nishant, but I kind of knew Nishant. I, but... Oh my God, Dale Olds. Dale Olds was invented to NDS. <laughs> Novell Directory he's, Service. He's right there. He's standing on the stage. Sign my directory. <laughs> yeah, right? Can you sign my root node? <laughs> it's like, oh my you God, I got an address book. So how did you get into ID Pro then? So, so we're going to blame Ian for I, okay. it. Well, it's, it is, well, that's the, my job. Or, or, I don't know, compliment? I don't know. We'll yeah. find out the story. So Ian did... I think was the one who was instrumental in getting the, there was a mailing list that the Kantara initiative agreed to, to host. Which is very um, kind of them. Which was Still the, very appreciative. Yeah. Which was the, the first set of discussions about what would a uh, professional organization look like for identity practitioners. And that mailing list went on for a, a little over a year. Um, and then I was on that mailing list, and I, I don't even remember what the circumstances were, but Ian came to me at one point and said, we're getting ready to kick this thing off, and we're forming a board, and we would like you to be on it. And once I realized I wasn't dreaming, and this was like really happening, um, yeah. Oh, I, I I jumped at the chance. I remember the I remember the first face-to-face -face board meeting around Ian's dining room table. 
Yeah. So, so from not too far from here. No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, just a couple stops in the metro. Uh, so, you know, from my perspective, like we were getting the legal entity created, and like one of the things, and I've learned far too much about governance of organizations in this process over the years, and I continue not to learn my lessons from that, but that's okay. And we needed a board of directors, and it was very important for that first board that we had a nice blend of people that were working in enterprise doing the work, because it felt very incomplete if we just had people that worked at technology providers. And so... I was thinking about like, who are some of the folks that are like, just so demonstrative of a practitioner and who I know can get shit done and who I think would be good together. And, you know, we we were lucky to get a a really wonderful group of individuals, uh, Hutch among them. Uh, And yeah. And then it went from there. Yeah. And now you are on, uh, you are aboard Emeritus now of ID yeah, Pro. Explain I am that on to the audience. Emeritus are, right? Island. We, are, we call it Emeritus Island, where we send our, our elders off and they go and um, there are tiki drinks. Uh, we have been told, although none of us have actually had them together, which is awkward. Um, but one of the things that was important about the board for me and the organization was we needed to have, and I think this is still true, a continuing changeover in leadership to bring new experiences, new people, new demographics to that board. And so we had, still do, have term limits. So I was moved on to the island a couple years ago. Uh, Hutch and the remaining members of the original board have joined us now. Uh, I, I went with you. Oh, that's right. You were, that's right. You were you, phase me one. You and Lance. All that's, right. The, that's right. We were the first, well, Alan, who was our... Alan Foster. Yep. Who was kind of the the Kantara representative yep. that first year? We sent him out first. <laughs> yeah, he scouted out locations. He's miserable. He at building, he's miserable at building log cabins, but that's an entirely <laughs> different conversation. Yeah, and then you, me, and Lance yeah, went, and just recently, this past July, the last of the original board has gone to Emeritus Island. So what happens on Emeritus Island? Do you guys have like a secret handshake? I know you mentioned the tea drinks, but... We can't talk about it. Okay, so I, what let's move on, on to the next question then. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Identity Week America. <laughs> um, you and I were on a panel today earlier. We were. Ian. Yeah. A lot of people on wow, it. Yeah, we really talked. good panel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, first time doing a panel, or at least me moderating one I, like see, that. See, that blows my mind because... Oh, now I feel you, even you worse. You need to be a professional moderator because <laughs> it, was, it was really well done. And I'm not like buttering you up because I want to be on, on the podcast again. It's because like there's a general ease that you ask questions. And I think there's some similarity to what you do here, but like also the sort of sprinkler effect, right? Like make sure everyone gets a little mm-hmm. bit of time. You did that all very naturally. I so did, you did a really I did, good job. I did prep for it quite a bit just to make sure. It's funny because, you know, I've done this podcast now for over four years. This is episode number 237, I think. And we've grown. Yeah, we've grown from like nobody listening to literally thousands of people around the world. And I'm not nervous doing this really anymore. I don't think I ever really was. But getting up on stage is a totally different beast. I don't know. I just haven't done it enough. I'm critiquing myself as I went through it. 
I just started us, us off. I didn't even introduce myself. <laughs> I was just like, here's all the people on the stage, and let's just kind of get into it, and that was it. And I was thinking, oh, oh crap, I forgot to introduce myself. Like, 101, I guess, for, for presenting. But we did have a good discussion. We did have a lot of people. It was a rowdy bunch. Uh, we had yourself. It was a little spicy. We had Megan Seamus from Fido. We had Jeff Rich from the IDSA. We had um, Tim Meyerhoff from Iris ID. And we had Julie Mad from LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And... You guys mixed it up. It was great. I felt like I had the easiest job up there because I was just asking questions and then trying to make sure whoever was giving me the nod or, you know, different visual cues that he had something to say and trying to pass it around. The measure of a panel is whether you have people saying, I agree with the previous panelist. And that's like, oh, fail. Oh, fail. You want want some interchange. You want some interplay. Mm -hmm. Um, And because otherwise the audience is like, well, why are there all of you up there? Could I just have one of you if you're all going to agree? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But we we should actually tell people, we're talking about authentication. And uh, notably, modern authentication. Modern in quotation marks. We're, we're definitely doing that, that in modern. And, I, and I, I started with you. I said, tell me what modern authentication is. Right. And then it. I was like, well, there's contemporary, which is <laughs> SMS OTP. And that's a sad, sad thing for all of us. Uh, and then I alluded to the concept there might be postmodern authentication, which is really, you know, I don't even know what that is, but we'll come up with it. And somewhere, somewhere, there's a startup right now. Mm-hmm. A guy handed me his card as we we're getting off the stage. He's like, we do postmodern authentication. I'm like, I feel like I should have trademarked that on the way <laughs> up. I'm like, I'm not entirely sure how that works, but like, I should have done that. Um, but we, we, we talked about state of play, where mm-hmm. we want to go. And I, I don't know, you were in the audience. How did How'd it go, Hutch? Well, I thought it was fantastic. I was, I was telling Jen, I, I feel even worse now that the, that was your first one. I've moderated panels before, and I don't do them <laughs> that well. Um, I, I like being on a panel more than I That's like the, moderating yeah. the, the, the panel. But I'm, I'm doing one this afternoon on Customer I Am, um, which has become near and dear to my heart. Um, and... There's some really good panelists on there. We have people from Hilton and PNC Bank and Nationwide Insurance and Fortrock Ping. Fortrock Ping? We're going to get to that. We should get to that later. We'll talk about that in a second. But a a good, wide-ranging, and and I do have questions in there about how how a CIM use case is different between those different pieces. But, yeah, no, I thought you handled it very fluid. Again, maybe because of the podcasting experience that's what i'm gonna blame it on (laughs) well i appreciate that that. it's not that i'm not good at this so so on the topic of of ciam uh i do want to put a plug in for id pro's body of knowledge um there has been so for those of you don't know the body of knowledge is a vendor neutral set of articles uh and ranging in various lengths and detail uh, about different topics inside of identity uh, and um, it's really quite far-ranging, and, it, and there's always been one gap in the body of knowledge, and it has just bothered me, and to the point where I'm like, fine, I'll do something about it. I'll this. do it myself. We'll I'll, do it live. <laughs> we'll do it live. Uh, so coming soon to a theater to you is a what I think we're calling part one of a customer identity and access management body of knowledge article. It's a huge topic. I mean, it's yeah. like as prepping for your panel, I'm like, oh my God, you can go in so many different ways of this thing. Um, but we're trying to lay out, you know, a, a little bit of a, who you need to be aware of, what are the things you need to be aware of, what are the basic building blocks, because there's so much 
deeper things we'll get into eventually, but I'm super excited for that one to hit the streets. Um, we're in DC right now. I don't know. Did we mention that up front? We're in DC and uh, Heather Flanagan, who is the acting executive director of ID Pro and principal editor of The Body of Knowledge, happens to be in town for another event. Uh, and when we get out of here, I'm going to make sure we go talk to her and be like, Can, when, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? Because it's that's a place I feel like as an industry, we don't have enough material in that topic space. Um, so I'm stoked to get some more out there and get yeah, more. Talk, talk about a, a slice of the identity ecosystem that you need to have um, the business involvement in. Yeah, I mean, forget what I said about having trying to get business requirements from them, but this is a place where the your identity ecosystem is going to help drive business strategy. I mean, it, it's it's all wrapped up in customer retention and user experience, and uh, it's it's not just a it's not just a big topic, but it's a super important topic that. I don't know. In my my previous lives, wasn't as big a deal. Didn't seem to be as big a deal. Like as it now working for a uh, a bank where you know you're dependent on not just your your consumer customers but your business customers as well. It is huge. There's so many places to go with that. Well, and you hit on a really important point, which is that the experience, the friction, whether you need to add it. Or remove it all of that is not a separate conversation from here are the business priorities for this year like they're directly tied in and that to me is super exciting it's nerve-wracking and you have a whole new set of stakeholders speaking a whole new language <laughs> but it's such a growth opportunity if you can tap into it yeah and trying to decide as you're trying to reduce friction for your customers you're also trying to beef up security yep. so you, you don't get breaches, you don't have fancy new AI systems that are trying to imitate the users, your customers coming in. Uh, it's where where is the suite? I'm, I'm super excited to be asking people this afternoon in all these different industry areas, where, where do you see that sweet spot? Where have you had to figure out where that is? I'm, I'm again, I'm interested to see where that conversation goes. What I find interesting is, is I, I very rarely see people in the real world, enterprise, whatever it may be, who are doing both enterprise identity access management or workforce identity management, the internal side, and they're also doing customer or consumer IAM. What I typically see in my experience is there is one group that's doing CIM and another group that's doing the in, in, inside of things. But I'm starting to see more blending of those two groups. Historically, I would say like uh, e-com and marketing were, mar which were, were much more involved with doing the CIM uh, the, the stuff. Whereas, oh, okay, I work on the enterprise and I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. It's changing. I think we're starting to see a lot more blend between the two. And Wait, for, you mean that there might be? There might be a chief digital identity officer in the offing? The Cheeto could, the Cheeto. could, could make a presence. Um, still sort of tore on that. Um, Hutch is shaking his head like, you guys are dorks. <laughs> Stop trying to make chief identity officer happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like that meme image, right? Uh, it's not going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm torn on it too, so we can, we can leave it at that and move on to other topics. All right, well, let's move to, because we, we talked about Ping and Forge Rock briefly. Um, news, 
broke relatively recently that, uh, first of all, Forge Rock was acquired by Toma Bravo, and then now Ping, which is another Toma Bravo company, is acquiring Forge Rock. What does that mean? What do we think is going to happen between Ping and Forge Rock? And this is certainly, you know, we're all, I don't think any of us have any inside information. We're just kind of thinking about it, but I think it's questions out there is, who survives, you know, this consolidation of two different companies? Because I can't imagine that you'll continue to have both Ping products and Forge Rock products doing, which do very similar, if not the same things. Yeah, I, I, I will say I know a lot more about the Ping side of the house than I do about the for, the Forge Rock. But I honestly thought it was good news for both of those companies because I. I have to be concerned about what I say because I don't want to make anybody upset. But I, opinions I, are our own; uh, do not yeah. reflect our employers. Blah blah blah. So, <laughs> I mean, for for the longest time, it's like the the people who were the the champions for me in that space were, you know, again Brian Campbell, who's still there, and Pam, and um, all all the people who were at Ping and made Ping. Like a great company, Ping was there. They were always on the cutting edge of the thing. If you if new standards were coming out, Ping was there. They seemed to be the 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 kind of the technology company, centering ourselves around Ping Federate. When I was at uh, GE, was just a smart thing to do. Um, but you had to build like a lot of your own stuff around it. It wasn't a complete stack. Um, Forge Rock seemed to be the um, you know, if, if airlines were, if identity companies were airlines, Fortrock seemed to be the one that everybody shows up at the airport with a different part of the plane, <laughs> and then you, you kind of put it all together. <laughs> and then, um, but they did have, it, it was more like a full-blown identity and access management. You could build a kick-ass stack. plane that way. Yeah. You could. Right, but you need, you you need to, to have together. some pretty good talent to put on I, I honestly think there's a there's a lot of baggage that's going to fall by the the wayside, but that you can build a, a really nice solid identity stack um, from the the components of those two companies and something that's something that's easy to use, still technologically advanced, solid when it's you know. When you're doing the even the the, the more advanced standards, the, the newer stuff that's coming out. I think the other thing that tends to get overlooked in these kinds of situations is now you've got one company with who both of them had amazingly talented people in their organizations, and now it's an embarrassment of riches in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that's an interesting opportunity. I think. The the road will probably be rocky, and like this moment, right? The, the the announcement is less than maybe a month old, give or take. Um, you know, it's uncertain for everybody inside the organization and outside. I'm sure. And um, you know, the negative thing that happens in markets, and it has nothing to do with Fortrock and Ping specifically, is in these moments of uncertainty, um, less scrupulous vendors will start going and targeting these call down on customers, on both, right? I'm sure paying and Fortrack customers are getting calls. People are like, hey, you're screwed. You don't know that yet. So we're going to have our thing come in, right? Like, I'm sure it's just a market reaction that happens. It's really, really unfortunate. 
And, you know, I think one of the most important things is if you had a principled architecture to begin with, and everyone does, but, you know, hopefully we're all aspirational and trying to get that, that the product that is scratching the particular itch is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. I mean, we literally started this conversation like, hey, you bought a thing and it didn't solve the problem. Well, because it has to be part of the whole. Um, I think what will come out of this, much like what Hutch was saying, is it'll be a better outcome over the the arc of the story and, and patience and not freaking out in the moment is really important. Yeah, I think it's going to be a rocky couple of years. Yeah. I think it takes a few years it, to do an integration. I mean, Aka yeah. went through the same thing with Off Zero, for example, you know, yeah. relatively recently. But at the end of the day, I think they're a stronger product because of it. Yeah, I feel the same way. Any other big acquisitions we want to make predictions around? Like, how do we feel about some of the other players in Identity? Anybody else going to get bought up, snapped up by someone else? There, there are companies I hope get bought up. <laughs> I, I would love to see Microsoft buy like a real identity governance administration company and integrate those systems into um, Azure. Um, but isn't that what Entra's supposed to be? It, yeah, well, it, <laughs> I mean, if I read the marketing from Microsoft, Entra will do was, everything that I needed to do, and I don't have to drive my car anymore. Uh, I was you know. about to say, I'm not, I'm not sure it was a, as, as big a technology leap as it was marketing um, leap. Very diplomatic which is, <laughs> which is fine. That's not to knock Microsoft, because over the last few years, I, I will admit, I've... I, I didn't jump on the Microsoft bandwagon until later in my career, but uh, I remember in 2016, uh, Clyde Denny Summit in New Orleans, um, uh, Alex Simons saying, "You know, no, really, we're 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 going to standardize. Uh, we're going to adopt fully adopt real industry standards. We're we're committed to." To doing this, and I was kind of like, yeah, well, I'll believe it when I see it, and and I believe it. Mm-hmm. Now they made huge investments in not just the the systems, but in people. the The identity stuff's gotten easier to use. It's got. I, I'm really impressed with how they've uh, integrated it to their cybersecurity um, tools. And at my own company, we we've kind of adopted a strategy of we, you know. We would love to use Azure tools where Azure tools are mature, but there's still some places where they don't solve for everything. Identity governance and administration is one of them. They have historically been one of their pain points because I remember, I think it was at a Gartner in 2015 or 16, Microsoft was on the stage and they gave like an identity governance demo of part of their product and haven't seen it (laughs) since then. Uh, they've done really well with the authentication. Like I think, you know, they've definitely consumed a large market share through office services and things like that, where absolutely the authentication product is world class, you know, definitely, you know, one of the best options out there. But they've really struggled on the identity governance side of things. So I think it's interesting that you mentioned that as an area you like to see them improve because historically their track has been, well, we go this far with IGA and once you get past that hey, let me introduce my good friends over here at, first it was, I think, Omada. Yeah. And then it was SailPoint. And then it was Savian. And they've kind of bounced around between who's their IGA partner of choice since then. 
and I have to, and I've been wondering for years, when are they actually going to do IGA well enough that isn't so myopically focused on Microsoft products and services that they can support more than just Microsoft? Because that's been the knock on Microsoft with everyone that I've talked with and all the deployments that I've seen and done is once you leave the Microsoft ecosphere, really a lot of the stuff kind of falls down. And the open standard helps for the authentication standpoint, but when you start talking about identity governance, you're talking about hundreds of apps that may or may not be cloud. Wait a minute, Skim didn't solve everything? Skim didn't solve it, right? Why there are these little islands. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, I want to be able to know who has access to what. Well, great, we can tell you that for these five things. Okay, but what about these other 200 that I have? You know, the interesting thing about the IGA market itself is much like I think, certainly in the markets I've looked at, the Microsoft Okta duopoly is a thing. Like the sale point kind of savient duopoly is kind of a thing. And I have to wonder if that's sort of the next sort of space where we're going to see some interesting entrance. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's also just a weird dynamic going on, uh, or maybe a not foreseen dynamic is there's a lot new, there's, there's some new potential acquirers that I don't know if I would have picked. For example, Cisco buys Ort. Ort is all of nine months old, I think, when they got acquired, maybe a year or so, in the nascent, shall I say, identity threat detection, response, recovery, rinse, leather, repeat. I'm not entirely sure what it all means. Um, and then they go buy Splunk, which, and back in the day, uh, one, of, one of my good friends uh, and, and friend to identity, uh, Bob Blakely always referred to Cisco as where software goes to die. Um, and there's many examples of software being acquired uh, where they have not sort of survived long at Cisco. So I'm very curious about what is different now. Mm -hmm. Certainly Cisco is making more investment in the United States, both in acquisition and, and actually just straight up investment. And the other one that, so that's like a space to watch. The other one is, is CrowdStrike. And because you're seeing them really push into ITDR through an acquisition that yep. they had made and you know, you know, protecting endpoints and now identity infrastructure. That's, I, I don't know actually how to process that. I'm just not entirely sure what to do with that, but it is interesting to see new acquirers get into the space because at some point, like you, know, you looked at the classic acquirers, the oracles of the world. IBM, or the CA. HBAs, the HP, <laughs> IBM, CA, and it really was like that part in uh, in Monty Python where it's like we're looking for the Holy Grail. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's too bad we already have one, right? Like it's like Oracle had how. Oh, here we go. That's the that's the warning for the emergency alarm coming up. This is the pre-alarm, right? Just in case we weren't sure, we are actually at a conference, right? <laughs> Recording. Uh, run by a, a particular a British organization, thus the British accent that you might have heard if you're confused. They, they don't speak like that here in DC. Um, but like these vendors, I mean, Oracle had, I don't know how many, uh, like essentially IDPs uh, or federation servers in their stable at any one time, like 50 or something, and it's not really true. But um, those acquirers now have got multiple, they've digested them over the years, they've repurposed them, they've done other things. So I think we're seeing a new generation of that, which is actually really interesting to watch as a market dynamic. It's very cyclical because you get these platforms, right? It was, oh, we have Oracle, it can do everything. And then there were, the reaction to that was, well, let's go off and get SailPoint because they're the new Best of the breed, block. best of stack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now guess what? We're back to this thing called converged IM, which is, to me, sounds and smells a lot like another platform play. 
it is interesting to see other companies come into this because they're not the typical platforms that you would expect, like an IBM or CA or whatever it may be. It is CrowdStrike. It is Cisco. Other folks that you wouldn't normally associate with identity. As a, as a practitioner, I've, I've seen the journey from the, the consolidation in my own particular instance. I'm glad you brought up CA. I was just feeling old that we weren't. <laughs> talking about Should we it. say BMC and then we've like now like <laughs> hit for the cycle or something there? I, Control I SA, had, baby. I had really wanted to, to stay at GE until we shut the last SiteMinder server off, but I, I didn't make it. It's still out there. I, I missed still see it. it. I missed it by like six months. Not at GE. Not at GE, actually, baby. But there are plenty of installations yeah. still out there. Um, but it, there was the consolidation, but then and one of the reasons we were moving off of it was because we were we were. We were breaking back out. Best of. We're going to do best of breed. We're going to do ping. We're going to do sale point. We're going to do, you know, it was. We were buying. Now I see it exactly what you kind of talked about. I see it coming back again. But I, I see it. Um, this with, time we'll get it right. <laughs> I, I'm not going to claim to be naive enough to believe that it's it's all good. But in my opinion, it's it's been better. Like when... And I feel like we can talk about CA because they're not around anymore. Um, but like when CA bought SiteMinder, all the engineers left. And SiteMinder was just kind of there, but it, it you didn't see the development and the improvement of it going forward. I feel like that's different now with companies like, I'm, uh, I'll admit right off the top, I'm a huge CrowdStrike fan. But when... They've, when people of these large companies have acquired other companies, it seems to be more strategic. It's not just a purchase for market share, obviously, that's part of it, but it's really to fill a niche into, hey, we really don't have a service here that can solve for this thing. And I feel like they're better integrated. You see, like, engineering resources that stay, the, um, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget the name of the, the directory began with a U that Ping bought. Oh, <laughs> oh Unbound. Unbound. Yeah. yeah. Like when Ping bought Unbound ID, those engineers didn't leave. Right. And because of that, Ping directory, I feel, was like really good. Um, and Absolutely. I, I see a lot of that similar thing going forward with, again, companies like CrowdStrike. Well, that's why I think it's so critical these stages when these, you know, this, this next couple of years, right, for Ping and Fordrack could be really important. Who is going to be left, you know, still within the organization? I mean, can you imagine if Vittorio had left Auth0 when they got bought by Okta? Okta would not be, you know, the same company without that type of talent being there. So I think it is interesting to see strategic acquisitions that are, that make sense, right? You're not just a shell company picking up different parts. Maybe that's Toma Bravo, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, they're they're collecting the Thanos ring of all the different <laughs> services that are out there. But when you see these other organizations come through, it's like, okay, yeah, I can kind of see how that would work because you're already in this space and it's adjacent to where I want to be. Um, but I think, it, I think it's a critical time right now where you do these massive, you know, integrations between two large companies. I mean, a lot of talent. We've got, you know, tons of people we know from both companies if they all stick around and have a cohesive strategy, I mean, nothing's off the table as far as world domination goes, you know, for that group. And, and I think it's great because historic, I think for the last couple of years, at least, it's really been a Microsoft Okta dog race on the authentication side. 
almost every organization that I've worked with is one of those two. It's very rare that I see ping actually out being used in the real world. Usually it's a ping federate because they've got that, you know, legacy and they've kind of gone through there. But from my experience, just having done, you know, hundreds of consulting engagements, it's pretty rare that I actually see ping out there. I see, I actually see forward rock more than I see ping. Yeah, I think ping, ping probably took too long to really adopt the, the cloud. Like as a true, if, if we could have gotten ping as a SaaS service, you know, a true SaaS service early on, rather than, you know, having, we were very fortunate that we, John Lettman, who's now at Okta, <laughs> um, he, uh, when he was a GE with us, um, he developed some of those first, was one of the first people to put ping into Docker containers, donated all his stuff to, to ping to say, hey, look, I deployed this to the cloud so you can build and destroy ping servers and other thing. But it wasn't a, we still had to, we still had to manage it. Yeah. You still had to have like a really talented identity team. It wasn't like going to Okta and saying, oh, yeah, I just want to use your stuff. And then it's like, well, let me swipe your credit card and you're up and running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's the the transactional nature now of a lot of these different services where, yeah, literally, I mean, AWS has certainly gotten this down to science, right? Add your credit card to your Amazon account, next thing you know, you're spinning up EC2 servers all over the place, right? It's, it's right. very commoditized from that perspective. Yeah. Um, we've got about 10 minutes until the alarms go off. <laughs> Feels like the natural close, <laughs> right, right for, and the, for the podcast. So we have, we have set precedent on this podcast that when we're at a conference doing this sort of thing, something happens to kind of close the show. Uh, Octane last year, we were recording literally as they tore the walls down around us and are in an area kind of like this. It actually had walls. You didn't take the hit. <laughs> we was like, all right, well, we got to go. Because literally as walls are falling down next to us. Uh, and I feel like the best way to end this show would be to hear that thing going off because I, I want to get into Dungeons and Dragons. Because yes. we were talking a little bit before we hit the show. I was but, wondering hey, how you were going to segue this. Well, there, there is no clever segue there other than I'm fascinated by it. I'm very interested and I'm, uh, I'm looking to learn. Um, I recently started playing Baldur's Gate, uh, which got me kind of back into that for people who are in the video game space. We were talking about this, you know, well, how do we want to end on a lighter note? And then you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and what's, what's a hobby? And it's our hobby, isn't it? This obsession. Lifestyle. Yeah. So people who so for people who are not familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, how do you explain it to a total newbie? It's a it's a game that exists in large part in your imagination. There's there there is a set of rules which you can choose to follow or not follow. Um, I feel it helps me to follow them. Um, but where the story goes, I mean, there's a the. The, it, we used to call them the dungeon masters. Now they're the game masters. So they're GMs instead of DMs. Um, but the game master is really setting out a framework, much as we do an identity. It's <laughs> setting out a framework. I'm, a particular I'm seeing solution. a new like, pitch talk coming for next I'm, year. I'm, this is going to be the name gonna of, be uh, my, of uh, Hutch's next like, uh, this this is gonna be presentation. My, or this is going to be my There's an Identiverse keynote I'm seeing right, in this. Yeah. A DM's guide to identity or something like that, or GM's guide. Yeah, we'll try it out at EIC and see how it goes. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> no, the... the they're basically laying out, you know, here's here's the world, here's the situation I've created, but where you go in it is is defined in large part to, you know, where the characters have it. And honestly, the 
the role playing is the the most fun. You get like a really good group of of people together, and there's we actually play on one Saturday a month, um, where it's it's a, a lot of former GE people that are uh, that are involved in the game. Anyway, the um, I started playing in 1977. I was in seventh grade, advanced D&D, which is version two. And I played like 77 through 82. Um, when I was in high school, I played a little bit in college because some of my friends worked for a company in Charlottesville. I went to the University of Virginia. So a company in Charlottesville called Iron Crown that had their own version of D&D. And I spent a lot of time up in their third floor offices um, playing their new stuff. Um, but then I, I hadn't touched it until about three years ago. We, we were on the Joko cruise, the, the cruise that Jonathan Cold created, the nerd cruise. <laughs> Look it up. It's insane. But people were talking about a... a a YouTube series called Critical Role, which was um, a bunch of, the way they describe it, a bunch of nerdy-ass voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons, which turned out to be brilliant, became insanely popular, and, and suddenly Hasbro is buying <laughs> you know, D&D. There are these incredible computer tools. Um, instead of trying to scribble out a, a map, I've got a I've got a 50-inch OLED TV that's in a case that sits on our dining room table, um, so I can have digital maps that I, you know, that I can get that other people have made. I it's used to use graph paper. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, was right. Like, that Everybody was what I did. did. Was like, okay, yeah. And you'd have to, you know, like draw your own yep. stuff, and you can still do that, and it can still be fun to do that. But there's a lot of kind of time-saving things. There are things that you know we play with a group that. Not everybody can sit around the same table anymore. But now with Zoom, you can have the, you can have the the screen the map projected. You can have everybody's faces projected, and people can roll dice digitally or in real life. It, it's to me, it's the the ultimate nerd. <laughs> and I like being a a fifty something nerd. I I I love the space. I've been playing games my entire life i never could i never got into dungeons and dragons specifically because it was too complex i think for my feet i actually did like there was a marvel take on dungeons and dragons i remember that i played yep. that in high school and i i had a great time with that we did like a campaign and had a great time with it and then i never touched it again and then i started playing video games it was like everquest and then world of warcraft for Still to this day, and that's the day your imagination died. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I like this. You know, the, I've always been a gamer, just part of my DNA, I guess. And then, within the last couple of years, D and D has started to take more public light because now you can watch people on Twitch, for example, right. stream their games, yep. and you know, famous actors are doing it. Like Joel Manganiello, right, is like a DM and stuff like that. I started watching it actually even more with, and I think I've mentioned this service before, it's a service called Dropout. It used to be College yep. Humor People. Dimension and they, 20. Yes, and Dimension 20, and Brennan Lee Mulligan, who Brennan I think Lee is Mulligan's fantastic. Great. 
Brendan Lee Mulligan was on the last Joko cruise. Of course, okay. the one we decided not to go on so we could do our Route 66 nope. trip. <laughs> so if, you, if you're not, here's, I'm, I, I have no affiliation with Dropout, but they have a streaming service, Dropout TV. Yep. It's like 60 bucks a year, which is crazy for the amount of content they put out. And they have so many good shows on there. They have this one called Game Changer, but they have the different D&D campaigns, I guess. So I've started watching those. And it's interesting because it is, you're watching almost like a play in real time. The yeah. players have, it's a dynamic thing, right? Where they can kind of get it. Now they're very good at it from the performance aspect because they're all improv type people. Um, I'm curious. So how do how do I get started in D&D? Do I just find like a local group to play with, teach me? Yeah, so there's actually, in, in almost every city, there's... There will be like a, a subreddit mm-hmm. for like Richmond has one. Richmond has one that uh, my partner Catherine <laughs> was moderating for a while. Um, but uh, there, there'll be a, a subreddit um, and you can literally just post, hey, I'm interested in getting into a game. Um, and it can either be a game where you meet up at a, it, a lot of times breweries now. Mm-hmm. Um, have games that they host and they restaurants and we'll do it. Um, but yeah, you search out that subreddit. And there, there are some that are in person. There are some that are. That that's the great thing. It's there are so many different ways to play it now. And the thing you talked about being complicated, advanced D D was insanely complicated. It was hard to understand even after you'd been playing it a couple of years. Uh, yes, the new version starting with version 5 which is the one that we got back into so much easier they 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 really kind of emphasize we're going to make this as simple as possible they mm. still more get to do you know and Baldur's Gate 3 I've heard is the closest thing to playing the tabletop game like a lot of people mm-hmm. have said oh I just recreated my tabletop character in there. Baldur's yeah. Gate 3 because it all follows the same rules follows the same mechanics and, and such so that's what's gotten me interested is having played through Baldur's Gate now and I played a bard because that's just what I did I've, for whatever reason I've always been attracted to the bard class of like this musician who can do like magic so things. wait a minute did you then as a younger person did you play Bard's Tale I didn't play Bard's Tale no EverQuest was my probably my first real I mean I'm not talking about like Nintendo and stuff like that but I played a bard in EverQuest I was famous on EverQuest because I could solo things that you weren't supposed to be able to solo using mechanics that I guess other people figured out but I've always been drawn to that class so I, in Baldur's Gate I created a bard and now I'm this weird illicit thing that can do a bunch of different stuff but it really got me back and it was like okay yeah I really should check this kind of out again because I, I enjoy the storytelling and the entertainment aspect of it and, but I've always been intimidated of, well, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I don't know what the rules are. And, and again, I think it's a lot easier not knowing anything. Mm-hmm. As long as you've got somebody at the table with you who does understand it, it's so much, you can... To be fair, that's it, identity also. It, it is. Way, that <laughs> is very well, literally exactly. identity. <laughs> Experience is the best teacher. <laughs> Ooh, oh, there, it there is. we go. Is. Can we hear it? It's starting. It's two minutes early. That's not a good sign. If the emergency broadcasting fired early, I feel like someone twitched. Wait a minute. Wait, it's true. Uh, 5G does turn you into a zombie. Hutch, <laughs> no. Oh, there we go. There's my phone. 
Interesting to see the latency between different networks. I, I literally like turned mine off. So. Well, you're a professional and I'm not, so uh, we'll let that clear out here. So if you had national emergency broadcast signal disrupting your conference and podcast, you have won bingo today. I wonder what's going over at Octane and how they dealt with it. Oh, oh I, think, <laughs> I didn't turn my watch off. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's a good. I think that's probably a good spot where we can leave it. I mean, that that sets tradition. Can we at least cut in and ask Jim like what's going on at Octane for the emergency broadcast? Like, I'll have to pack, text him and find out. If pack they that would, in. I wonder if they even thought about it. Why? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, okay. Well, I, I would definitely love to talk more D and D, but I said, like, hey, let's record like thirty or forty minutes, and it's been over an hour. So <laughs> I think it's probably a good spot where we can leave it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this. and Thank you for story. having me. This is so cool. Yeah, I hope you will come back and uh, you know be part of the conversation. Oh, okay. Ian, what, uh, how do you think about your, your guest co-host spot here? I am not up for this task. <laughs> I have learned that Jim does a very hard job, and I, I need either more swings at the ball or um, uh, maybe should just de- be demoted to like a junior podcast somewhere. To I, I thought you were a natural, oh, and I think you. you did well, and we will definitely have both of you guys back on. Um, we'll go ahead and leave it for this week. We'll have links in our show notes for Weave Identity, for ID Pro, connect with Hutch and Ian, both on LinkedIn. Uh, don't forget about Authenticate Conference coming up. It's, I think by the time people hear this, I'm going to try to get this out for Friday, the, what is tomorrow? The 5th or no, by the 6th. And then we'll be at Authenticate in a couple weeks. We've got a discount code there, IDAC15podcast. It's getting kind of late in the game, so you probably want to use that. Book your tickets uh, now. Yep. Yeah, um, I think Ian, you're going to be at Authenticate? I will be. I will Hot be. going to be Authenticate? I was, but no, I'm not. No, you was, but no, I'm not. Okay. Well, one out of two ain't bad. And uh, yeah. So we'll go ahead and leave it for that week. For, for, for now, we're on the web, IDACpodcast.com, Twitter, at IDACpodcast, Mastodon, at IDACpodcast, at infosec.exchange. Real quick aside, how do you guys feel about like that naming convention for Mastodon? I just don't like it, where you have to like, have username. I just observed that, that you called it Twitter and not eh, X. You can fix Twitter, it in post. X, whatever. No, the Mastodon I, thing cumbersome but it makes sense to nerds it does but it's it's not i don't feel like it's going to get mass adoption until it's easy to use i'm a little shamed that i i i still haven't figured out how to use it properly and then i i ended up on a server that nobody else is on (laughs) i don't know where to post but it's federated that's the problem i have i don't know where to post sock shots from conferences is what i always did and Swex feels a little dead to me, and I don't know, Blue Sky? Like, and, and X I don't feels have a Blue dirty Sky invite, now. So. Yeah, yeah. Maybe someday. I don't, Blue Sky is very exclusive, I feel like you need to be on the I do have of. I do have Blue Sky, but it, nobody else is there. No, well, that's because it's invite only. <laughs> what, what, what happens when you have one fax machine? Yeah. You are lonely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's devolved into chaos over here. Uh, thank you so much to the Identity Week America crew, Molly, Johnny. Uh, others that helped kind of pull this together and brought us in. So definitely appreciate that. Hopefully we can do more stuff with them in the future. Uh, yeah, and thanks for everyone who came up, said hello, got a sticker, you know, all that good stuff, and uh, for supporting the show. So we'll go ahead and leave it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk with everyone in the next one. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.